Uh, let me just pray for our time together, and then I'm going to read uh, the intro to Exodus, and we're going to spend our time going through the book of Exodus. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for what you've done through, uh, through history, that you've written it down for us in Scripture. Uh, we thank you for the Exodus, because we know that the Exodus from Egypt is, is really the Exodus from this sin-death world. And as you brought a people out of slavery to take them into the land that you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We remember that that land that you promised to Abraham and to his descendants really is just a down payment on the new heavens and the new earth. And that you will take us from slavery to sin and you will give us the new heavens and the new earth and we will see your face on the holy mountain, Mount Zion. God, I pray that you would help me uh, there's a lot of material to cover. I pray that you would be on my tongue, help me to be articulate and concise, clear. Uh, I pray that you would be with each of the men here, that you would help them to hear and to receive and to retain the things that we learn from your scriptures. We're going at quite a pace, and I pray, Lord, that uh, this pace would be pleasing to you and that you would help us all to benefit from the big picture. I pray these things trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Read to you the beginning of Exodus because it transitions us so well from Genesis. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now this is a first indication that the promise given to Abraham is coming to fulfillment. I will make your descendants like the stars of heaven. They came into Egypt with 70 and now we're told that the land was filled with them. We don't get a number. We will get a number at the end of Exodus, 600,000 men, which is about 2 million people. So in the course of their sojourn in Egypt, God took a family of 70 and turned them into a nation of 2 million. So even in slavery, there was a purpose to what God was doing. He, he wasn't just forgetting them when he says, I remembered my people. It's not as if he had forgotten them. He actually took them to Egypt for a purpose to multiply them into a nation as part of what he promised to Abraham. And so we, we sometimes are in our own little uh, slavery experiences or like Joseph in prison and it just doesn't seem good. And this is to piggyback on what Jay said on Saturday, finding the good in adversity. This is some clear adversity, 430 years in slavery, but it was the, f the means by which God was fulfilling a promise that he made to Abraham. God does not always fulfill his promises the way we would want him to, but he is fulfilling his promises. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Then 11 through to the end of the verse, we see that 
Uh, he set taskmasters over them. He enslaved them. He had them build store cities, such as Pithom and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread, to the point where Pharaoh says, there's too many, let's start killing their male babies. So that, that gets us from Genesis into Exodus. We're in Egypt because there was a famine in the land. God sent Joseph on ahead. He became the prime minister. He, he cultivated the land for seven years, stored up the grain, and then he ran a food program which made uh, Egypt abundantly wealthy, more wealthy than any nation up to that point in history. And that's how Joseph's family found themselves in Egypt. Let's take a look at the broad strokes of the book. If I can get this to work. Did you plug it in? Okay, good. I think. No, not good. Oh, there we go. Oh, no, you're doing it. Ah. Okay, that's right. I can use this for the whole day. That's okay. No, this is perfect. Yep, perfect. Okay, so... Here we see the whole book, and, and the book is divided into three parts. Uh, from chapters 1 through 15, we see the story, and this is really what we think of when we think of the book of Exodus, right? This is where God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. Then you have this middle section, which often gets overlooked because it blurs in with the book of Numbers. This is like a mini book of Numbers tucked right into the middle of the book of Exodus. And this we see God providing for Israel in the wilderness. And what we're going to see, all the elements of the book of Numbers are packed into this small little section from chapters 15 through 18. And then the part that some of us maybe aren't really aware of is, well, we know the law part. But God enters into covenant with Israel at Sinai. And so we have uh, a ton of chapters all about God entering into covenant by law. And then a lot of chapters about God giving instructions and then Israel's construction of, according to those instructions, the tabernacle. And that's the, the book of Exodus. So slavery, deliverance from slavery, walking in the wilderness, coming to Sinai and receiving two gifts from God. The first gift is the law. The second gift is the tabernacle. And we want to think of these two things as gifts. We're not prone to think of law and tabernacle as gifts, but these are huge blessings that God gives to his people. And over the next number of weeks, I hope to show that to you. So let's zoom in here. The first major section, or we can look, sorry, we'll look here. So let's take a look at those three subsections in the first 15 chapters. You have chapters 1 through 4, which are the early life and the call of Moses. Then you have chapters 5 through 12, where Moses is confronting Pharaoh. And then you have chapters 12 through 15, where Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. So let's take a look at these three subsections of this first major part. The early life and call of Moses. We're going to start by looking at slavery. Peter already introduced this to us. He was absolutely right. One of the major things as Christians that we must see in the book of Exodus is the typology of slavery. It's no accident that God is going to begin his salvation history in earnest in the book of Exodus with an enslaved people. 
And even the Jews recognized that when Adam sinned, he enslaved humanity to sin. So that's not, you don't have to wait for the New Testament to see the typology. There, there's something happening in the historical experience of Israel that they're enslaved, and that slavery is, is a picture of the greater slavery that, that began in the garden when Adam sinned. So we see this is explicitly stated in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 and 18. Do you not know, says Paul, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? You're either a slave of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of of righteousness. And this is exactly the dynamic that we're going to see in the book of Exodus. They're slaves to Pharaoh, and then by entering into covenant with God at Sinai, they become slaves of God. Which is not a bad thing, because when you covenant with God, who is the source of life, that slavery is life. Slavery in Egypt is, is death. Slavery through covenant with God is life at least the potential for life. So that's a major theme in the book of Exodus that, that we're going to see. And when we get to Deuteronomy, I'm going to zoom out and show you the whole Torah in big, big scope. But I'm just planting the seed now. This is all about our lives, our slavery to sin. The early life of Moses begins when Pharaoh wants to kill the babies, right? All the male babies and the midwives hide Moses or lie about it, and, and Moses' mom hides him because he's beautiful, and then it becomes impossible for her to hide him anymore, so he puts, or she puts Moses in an ark and floats the ark on the river. There's only two places in the Hebrew Bible where this word is used, ark, and it's not the ark of the covenant. That's an English word that is not actually the same word as the ark that Noah built, but the ark that Noah built and the ark that baby Moses was put in, which we call a basket, that's the same Hebrew word. That's not a mistake. We're going to see another time where, where the, 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 the Noah and the Moses story interfaces. So I'm just letting you know this right now. And even now begin to think about the role of the Nile River and an ark floating down the Nile River. And Moses is scooped up out of the river. And when the princess of Egypt adopts Moses into the royal family, although she doesn't know it and no one else knows it yet, that's a fresh start for the nation of Israel. We also see in the early life of Moses, Moses' first words. In Hebrew narrative, you get very little interior monologue. We're used to reading books where you get a lot of information about what people are thinking, what people are feeling. You get hardly any of that in the Hebrew Bible. So when you're reading Hebrew narrative, one of the ways that, that God has given us insight into the character arc of these main players, these round characters in salvation history, is through their first and last words. And so there's something about the very first words that these major players say that becomes significant. And here, look at what Moses' first words are. Why did you strike your companion? 
So in his first words recorded in the narrative, we see here that Moses is going to be some kind of an arbitrator. He, he comes onto the scene in the life of Israel in the narrative when there are two Hebrew slaves fighting one another. And he steps in to intercede. And the man, one of the, the, one of the man says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Previously in the story, he saw an Egyptian beating uh, a Hebrew slave and he killed the Egyptian. So in these two episodes, when Moses kills the Egyptian slave master to protect the Hebrew slave, that's a, a, a shadow of what Moses will be. He will be Israel's protector over and against Israel, uh, Egypt. And then in this second appearance, you see two Hebrews fighting, and Moses intercedes to try to arbitrate the conflict. And look at what this man says. He's a prophet, and he doesn't know it. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? What's the answer to that question? The Lord your God. So in the early narrative of Moses' life, you see already sort of Moses' destiny being uh, described for us. Uh, and I, I tell you these things because these are little hints that will help you to learn how to read Hebrew narrative. You've got to have an eye for what to look for. Look for the first words. Look for what's the greater pattern? What's the greater significance of what's going on here? If something is recorded in the Bible, it is never because it is to be thrown away or forgotten or overlooked. Everything has significance. And what I hope to show you over the course of Frontline is that you need to be looking for patterns. Remember, Jay asked, well, where does it say that explicitly? Well, it doesn't say it explicitly, but it does show us patterning. And when you see patterning in the, in the Hebrew Bible, you, you will see significance to those patterns. So moving on, we see a lot of patterns there. Look at this. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? For 40 years, Moses was an Egyptian prince. Then, for 40 years, he flees because he killed uh, an Egyptian slave master and he feared for his life. And he's a shepherd in Midian. And then for 40 years, he's a shepherd prince over Israel. He lived 120 years. Now this is amazing. It took him 80 years of training to be qualified to do the thing that God called him to do. So where are you in your life? Uh, you may very well still be in the training phase of your life. And the very thing that God has for you to do has not yet appeared and he's still training you. You might be 80 years old, and then finally that thing comes that that's the thing. Not that the training is, is meaningless in and of itself, but 80 years to prepare him to be Israel's shepherd prince. We talked a little bit about this uh, woman at the well, and I told you that there were eight plot points at, at well scenes. In Exodus chapter 2, or, yeah, Exodus chapter 2, Moses flees, and he immediately is at a well, and some women come to the well. He gets invited for dinner, and then he ends up marrying Zipporah. I want to show you those eight plot points. And every time you see a man at a well in the Bible, look for these eight plot points. This is, again, macro-type scenes, typology, patterns. So every one of these starts with a man traveling far from home. And then a man sits by a well. Then a woman, or women plural, come to the well. 
and water is drawn, there's also usually conflict, which I didn't put in there because I, I just, I'm not sure what to do with it, but I just want to note it for you. There's usually some kind of conflict or struggle at the well. But then water is drawn. The woman goes back home or runs into town to tell news of the man's arrival to the well while the man stays at the well. Then the man is invited for supper. And then the man and the woman are betrothed, usually at the supper. And then the man and the woman consummate the marriage. And usually it gives birth to somebody who's significant. And the man in all of these well scenes becomes a major player in salvation history. Now let's take a look at where this shows up in the Bible. In Genesis 24, verses 10 to 33, this is where Abraham sends his messenger to get a wife for his son Isaac. And so in, in these verses, the, the messenger goes and these eight plot points come out. And then in Genesis 24, verses 34 to 67, it's extremely redundant and the messenger says, before I'll eat anything, I have to tell you what just happened to me. And he recounts the whole story almost verbatim. And for us, with our Western mindset, it just seems boring and redundant and not necessary. Why would God do that? The very first time that we have this type scene, it gets repeated. Well, I think it's because what God is doing is he's establishing this as a pattern in the very first occurrence. This is a pattern. It's repeated twice in the very first episode. This is Isaac marrying Rebekah. The next time we see it, we have Jacob who goes in Genesis 29 verses 1 to 30. All eight of these plot points happened, and Jacob marries, he wants to marry Rachel, and that's the woman who comes to the well. He ends up marrying Leah and then Rachel. You have a double consummation, but all the plot points are there. So now we have, uh, we have Isaac and Rebekah, and we have Jacob and Leah and Rachel. And Leah and Rachel, with their two concubines, become the mothers of Israel. All of them involved in this type scene. We come to the next one, which is why I'm bringing it up. Exodus 2, verses 11 to 22. Very quickly, from 11 to 22, it's not very long, all eight plot points happen. And by the end of it, Moses is... Uh, betrothed and married to Zipporah and then she gives birth to a son and he calls his name Gershom for he said I've been a sojourner in a foreign land so that's pretty proof positive of consummation then in 1 Samuel 9 1 to 14 we see the first three of these plot points when Samuel is on a quest to find his father's donkeys. We have a man traveling far from home. He comes to a well. The women come out to the well. Oh, sorry, Saul, yeah. Saul, thank you. Saul. Saul is looking for Kish's donkeys. And so if Saul's going to be a major player in salvation history, he just needs to draw them some water. But he doesn't. He says, is there a seer in town, a man of God? And the women say, yeah, she, he's in town. Go see him. He doesn't draw water. He aborts the type scene. Even though he's the first king of Israel, we know right then and there he is not a major player in salvation history. But then we have John 4, 1 to 42. I don't think you can read John 4 and get what John is trying to communicate to us, what Jesus was intending to do unless you know what came before it. How do I know that Rebecca is a picture of the church? Well, we know Isaac is a picture of Christ from Genesis 22, and Rebecca is paralleled by the Samaritan woman 
Jesus is in a marriage type scene with a Samaritan woman, and a Samaritan woman is half Jew, half Gentile. She's been married five times. She's an adulteress. She's, mar- she's, she's living with a man that's not her husband. That's us. That's the church. So we see this type scene in Exodus 2. Moses goes through all eight plot points in this type scenes, which guarantees him a place in the hall of faith. Moving on, the call. The call of Moses. We get into Exodus chapter 3, and there's quite a few chapters here, but i just give you uh, three verses, verses 13 to 15. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So you'll remember that this conversation between God and Moses is happening because Moses is out looking after his sheep. He looks up, he sees a bush that looks to be burning, but then as Moses looks at it, it's not burning, but it looks like it's burning, but it's not burning. There's no smoke. So Moses is curious. He goes to it, and then God says, take off your sandals for the the land on which you're standing is holy ground. And then there's this exchange where God says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and you're going to liberate Israel, the slaves, from their slavery. Now, this is a problem for Moses because he's biologically a Hebrew, but culturally he's an Egyptian. He's not what you might say the, the number one candidate to be Israel's savior. He's an Egyptian. He, he's not liked by the Hebrews. He was an Egyptian prince. He was their overlord. And the last time he had an interaction with them, they said, who made you prince and judge over us? So he's a little bit nervous. And you'll know, uh, don't send me, God. I'm slow of speech. Did he have a stutter problem? Maybe. I'm inclined to think that he just didn't know the language that well. He's Egyptian. He might have known the language some, but he, he's not a native Hebrew speaker. Maybe he could speak it enough because he was interacting with those Hebrew slaves, right, back in uh, Exodus 1, 2, early on. But he has uh, probably a, an Egyptian accent. Uh, he, he's probably not that articulate in Hebrew. And God says, well, don't worry about that. Your brother Aaron, he's good at Hebrew. So I'll partner you up with him. You're my man. You've been training for this for 80 years. I want you to go. What I want you to see here especially is this is the introduction of the covenant name of God. So in the Torah, when you're reading, you will read the Lord. The Lord with, see that with all capital letters? That is I am. So you will see it before. But the characters in the history, the men and the women in the history, don't call God Yahweh or the Lord. Moses is writing this history, and so he refers to God before God reveals himself as the Lord, as the Lord. But this is where God introduces his covenant name. He's about to enter into a more intimate relationship with humanity. And as Peter said, instead of just being the God of Abraham the the man, and Isaac the man, and Jacob the man, and Judah the man, he's now going to be the God of a nation through Moses. And so he reveals himself. 
Now, a little bit of translation. Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, which is the four Hebrew letters, which would be in English Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, is the Hebrew word for I am. In your Bible, whenever you see Lord, all caps, that is Yahweh, I am, the name of God. Now, I am in Greek is ego eimi. The thing is, in Greek, you don't need ego before the verb because you just make the verb the first person singular. So if you put, so eimi by itself is I am. If you put ego before eimi, you're saying I, I am. You're, you're, you're emphasizing, it's me. I am the one who is I am. So when you see ego eimi in the, in the New Testament, what you're seeing there is a very uh, explicit, a very intentional use of the divine name, which is blasphemy to the Jews. So what does Jesus do in the Gospel of John? He says, ego eimi, the bread of life. He says, ego eimi, the light of the world. Ego eimi, the door of the sheep. Ego eimi, the good shepherd. Ego eimi, the resurrection and the life. Ego eimi, the way, the truth, and the life. Ego eimi, the vine. How many ego eimis is that? Seven. Yeah, so it's even grammatically weird. So you have that climactic. Before Abraham was, I am. Good. But these seven I am statements, and that one doesn't follow this pattern. So you have that one, which is stands alone, and these work together, and Jesus is given a sevenfold usage of the divine name. Do you think Jesus understood himself to be God? He's using uh, the Lord's covenant name explicitly in the context of Jews where that would have been blasphemy. No wonder they wanted to kill him. And in fact, in John's gospel, we find out that they did want to kill him because he was making himself equal to God. He was applying the divine name to himself, which if he is not God, he is guilty of breaking, what is it, the second commandment? Or the third, do not use my Lord, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is clearly using the name of the Lord your God in vain. I guess that's the third commandment. Unless Jesus is the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And this is something I really want to encourage you to do for the rest of your reading of the Old Testament. When you're reading a God and the things that God does, the things that God says in the Old Testament, I want you to think of Jesus saying and doing these things. We default, don't we, to thinking of God the Father? It's God the Father that is interacting with Israel in the Old Testament. And, oh, lo and behold, we find out that God has a son in the New Testament. Actually, in John, John's Gospel makes this very clear that it's the triune God who is interacting with Israel of which Jesus is the second person. It is Jesus who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. It is Jesus who delivered his people from Israel. Jesus is Yahweh. And so we don't want to make three gods out of God. It's also the Father and the Spirit, of course. 
Look at what Jude says. I love this. This is tucked away the back of the Bible. And very few people read the book of Jude. But Jude, verse 5, says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So anyone who says the God of the Old Testament is gruff and ill-tempered and wrathful, but Jesus is kind and nice and pacifist. Well, Jude, in the New Testament, says that Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus did that. And so did the Father and the Spirit. But Jesus is God. You know what's really cool about this is Jude is the brother of Jesus, the earthly brother of Jesus. Can you imagine saying that of your brother? You know, my brother Jesus, he delivered a people out of Egypt and destroyed those who did not believe. It's amazing. That's the call. So that's the early life and the call of Moses. We're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. I had to use at least one image from the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Let my people go. This, this middle section, which we know the most about, I'm going to skip over pretty quickly. Um, so in these, in these uh, chapters, you'll see here, chapters 5 through 12, you get this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. And this is really a showdown between Jesus and the devil. Let my people go. He become, Pharaoh becomes a type, a picture of the devil. And Jesus has come to deliver us from slavery. Remember, the Bible is not a book with genealogies. It's a genealogy with stories. We see that in this section. Here, we're not getting the messianic line. Here, we're getting the priestly line, which is a picture, a shadow of Christ's priesthood. So we zoom in, we see Levi. Remember Levi? Levi and Simeon killed all the men at Shechem after having them circumcise themselves. So he's not the line of the Messiah, but God's not done with Levi. Levi is the ancestor of Aaron and Moses. Aaron, we're going to find out in two weeks' time, becomes the first high priest, and there's a lineage of high priests from Aaron. And we get that lineage, that genealogy of high priests here in the book of Exodus. A little foreshadowing. And then we have the ten plagues of Egypt. And I, I have heard, I haven't done a lot of study on this, but I've heard that each plague is, is zoning in on one particular Egyptian god to show that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is more powerful than any Egyptian god. He has control over the Nile. Because like, the Nile was a god, and gods came out of the Nile. He, he has control over all of the life and well-being of everything in Egypt. So I'm not going to go through that right now, but just so you know, these ten plagues, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would have an opportunity to send ten plagues on the land of Egypt. And why would God want to do that? To prove that he is God. I want Egypt to know that I am more powerful than all of their gods. So let my people go. That's that section of great confrontation. Uh, the last subsection within this first major section of God delivering his people from Egypt is Moses leading his people out of slavery. So leaving Egypt. And there's so much to talk about with the Passover. Let's just take a look here. When the hour came, 
he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. This is Jesus. And Jesus said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is a Passover meal. And that's not coincidental. Jesus was crucified on Passover, the day of Passover, and he shared a meal, which was his Passover meal, with the disciples on the Thursday night. So this is from Luke 22, 14 to 20. Look at what he says here. I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? The Passover meal is a memorial meal to remember the exodus of God's people from Egypt. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to eat the Passover meal again until it is fulfilled. That fulfilled Passover meal is the wedding supper of the Lamb, which we read about in Revelation 19. The memorial meal of God delivering his people from slavery to sin. At the Passover meal, they would eat a lamb The wedding supper of the Lamb is the wedding supper of the Passover Lamb in fulfillment. What Jesus is saying is, if you're going to understand what is going to happen tomorrow on Passover, you have to know that I am the Passover Lamb. Which means, typologically, what happened to Israel is fulfilled at the cross when we were delivered from sin. So let's go through these parallels. There's a lot of them, so I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. In Exodus, they're enslaved in Egypt. We're enslaved to sin. The tenth plague was the the death of the firstborn of every house. God didn't wipe out all of Egypt, but that was just his grace. The death of the firstborn of every house and of every uh, livestock and all of that was meant as a uh, uh, proportional sacrifice which was a symbol of God wiping out all of Egypt. When God killed the firstborn in every house, he was saying, I have the power to wipe out everyone in the most powerful nation on earth, which is actually going to be fulfilled at the final judgment. There's a final judgment coming where God will wipe everyone out by sending them to hell. And unless there's a Passover for God's people, we would be wiped out with everybody else, which takes us to our deliverance. But Israel was to take a lamb without blemish. We are to have a savior without sin. It had to be a perfect lamb because we have a perfect savior. The lamb was selected on the 10th day of Nisan and that is fulfilled by uh, the triumphant entry of Jesus. When Jesus comes in on the donkey, that is God selecting his Passover lamb. And he came in at the time when people would be selecting their Passover lambs for inspection. And they were to inspect their lambs for four days. And the Passion Week, you know how uh, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to trap Jesus? They're continually trying to entrap him to get him to, to, to stumble in the things that he says. That was the inspection period for Jesus. Is he really perfect? And he never erred. He never made a mistake. He never had a false word. He was perfect. Then the lamb was killed On the 14th of Nisan, that was the very day that Jesus was crucified. 
The lambs were to be slaughtered at twilight, we're told in Exodus. Twilight in the Bible is the time of the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice is at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And what are we told? Jesus died in the ninth hour, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At the very moment when all those Jewish families and households were slaughtering their lambs and draining out their blood, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He died with all the Passover lambs. God is so precise. Moses was instructed that the lamb was to be roasted and not boiled. And this is symbolic of propitiation. Christ, when he hung on the cross, was roasted in God's wrath. He wasn't seasoned. He didn't make a delicious aroma. He was roasted. And he was roasted whole. The Passover lamb was to be roasted whole with its head, legs, and inner parts. The lamb was to be the blood was to be drained, and then the lamb was to be roasted whole, and then the meat was to be taken off the carcass, then the carcass was to be buried that night. Not a bone of Jesus was broken. He was not decapitated. He wasn't um, gutted. He died by crucifixion. Joseph. Yeah. And the entire lamb was to be eaten that night. Rome loved to keep their crucified victims up there for days, but because it was a high feast day, the Passover day, um, the Jews said, no, you've got to take those criminals down today. So just as the lamb had been eaten that night, Jesus was taken off the cross and buried that very day. Um, death passed over the houses that applied the lamb of the Passover lamb, or the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorposts and lintels of their house condemnation that is the second death eternal hell passes over anyone who applies the blood of jesus christ to their life by faith the feast of unleavened bread was seven days where you're supposed to eat unleavened bread after the passover this has twofold fulfillment uh, we're reminded when jesus took the bread and said this is my body it was the beginning of unleavened bread it was an unleavened piece of bread that has two significances to it number one the unleavened bread was to be a reminder that salvation comes in an instant uh, one moment israel was enslaved in egypt the next moment they were free likewise one minute we're enemies and rebels who hate god the next minute we're adopted children Salvation is not progressive in our faith. It's instantaneous. You are born again in a moment. There's a conception. You're a new creature. There's no process here. You're an enemy, then you're a son. Also, sin, leaven becomes a picture of sin in the Bible, and Jesus was entirely without sin. He gave up his body that was without sin. Also, we find out that the seven days of eating unleavened bread is to signify a, a response to the Passover, even for Israel, was to live a holy life, a life without sin. And our right response to what Christ has done for us is not to take it for granted and to heap sin on him on the cross, but to respond rightly to God's gracious deliverance by living holy lives, that we ourselves are to be that unleavened bread. Pharaoh reliefs the slaves. Satan has no control, no power over us. The power of sin is broken. We're no longer slaves to sin. It has no power over you, so stop acting like it does. You are free. You have been made obedient from the heart. You are now a slave to God. You are a slave to righteousness. 
And then Israel plundered the Egyptians and took all of their wealth. And, and we're going to get into this in another slide. But the meek shall inherit the earth. We're going to plunder the universe. And God's going to give us all the riches of the universe. And all the rich people are going, if they're not in Christ, are going to go to hell. And we will receive their riches. There was a mixed multitude that went up with Israel. There were some Egyptians that heard about Israel's God and the Passover. And so they practiced the Passover and they were delivered along with the Hebrews. This reminds us that salvation is not just for Israel, it's for all nations. And then at the end there, we find out that only the circumcised can celebrate the Passover. And that is also true in the New Covenant. It's only those with a circumcised heart who celebrate the Lord's Passover at the final judgment. And, and the circumcised heart is that your sin nature is cut out of your heart. See, that is a remarkable number of parallels. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Wow, that's good. I hadn't never seen that. So the first two plagues is, or first plague is water and blood. And then two through eight, you have darkness, or wrath of God. And then the ninth plague is darkness. Wow, that's really good. So, and then the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. Brilliant. Thank you. Got to keep moving, but that is amazing. We see in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, Paul makes it explicit. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We ought to respond to what Jesus did for us by living holy lives. Moving on, that's the Passover. I mean, that could be our whole night. Plundering the Egyptians. Just look at this. Uh, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead if they stay. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up with the cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they had asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians and the people of Israel journeyed, journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. About 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now remember I said that when Abraham put his wife into a harem, that was foreshadowing this. Because the life of Abraham is all of salvation history. Look at the similarities here. In Genesis 12, there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Just like Jacob and his family of 70 went down because of a famine. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Joseph was taken into Pharaoh's house. He was seen as beautiful by the royal family. And then Moses after him. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And, and he gave him, so Pharaoh enriched Abram with sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues. 
because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave the men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had, all of the riches that Pharaoh had given to him. And this is exactly what Pharaoh says after these plagues. God says, I'm sending these plagues so that Pharaoh will know that I am Israel's husband. And Pharaoh says, get out of Egypt and take all these riches with you. So is it explicit? Well, you judge. And I think this is fulfilled when, Ma- when jo- Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We will plunder the earth. We will get the riches of the universe. Then we have the Red Sea, which is a picture of baptism. Paul says it. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. After Pharaoh released the slaves, they came to the Red Sea and they were trapped. But then God split the sea open and what Paul is saying is God baptized them through the waters. He delivered them through the Passover lamb and then he baptized them at the Red Sea. And when they got to the other side of the Red Sea, Pharaoh, who is a type of Satan and the power of sin, pursued them. And isn't that the way? We're delivered by Christ, but sin is always chasing us. The devil is after us. Well, the Red Sea is a really good reminder that not to worry because they drowned in the Red Sea. We are free. You don't have to obey your sinful tendencies. Satan and his demonic horde have no power over you. And that's why we believe in believer's baptism. Baptism comes after deliverance. Take a look at this baptism. I I, I don't have time to go through this, but all the parallels between the baptism of Noah and the baptism of Moses. So very quickly, you see the scriptures there. You have Noah and Moses working together in the same pattern. For Noah, it was a global flood. For Moses, it was the Red Sea drowning the Egyptian army. The security that God's people had, well, for Noah, it was the ark that they got into. For Israel, it was that they passed through on dry ground. In Noah's day, the whole world was destroyed. In Moses' day, it was the Egyptian army. But they both had a fresh start. Noah's fresh start started on the top of a mountain, Mount Ararat, and Israel's fresh start started at the top of Mount Sinai. And that's fulfilled in Christ, we're told. 2 Peter 3 and even 1 Peter 3 say that Jesus is the fulfillment of both Moses and Noah. And we're told that there is going to be a great destruction to come. Whereas in the days of Noah and Moses, the destruction was by water, the destruction to come will be by fire. The whole universe is going to burn up. What's our security? Where's our ark? What is our dry ground? It's the person of Christ himself. We are in Christ. He is the ark that carries us through the final destruction of this fallen world. And what we're told is we journey through the final judgment in Christ. We come out, and where do we land? I see a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and where does it land? on the resurrected Mount Zion in Jerusalem where the Temple Mount is, and we come out and live forever in a new heavens and a new earth. 
It's the fresh start that was promised to Noah. It's the fresh start that was given to Moses and Israel. And it's fulfilled in us through Christ, who has destroyed all of the scoffers. There will be a great judgment, and you have to be in Christ to come through. Everyone else is destroyed in that final judgment. This is amazing. So, what I want to say here is that the old covenant antecedent for, for baptism is Moses and Noah, not circumcision. The fulfillment of circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. The fulfillment of Noah and Moses is our water baptism. And when you're baptized, you are stepping into Christ, into his death, into his resurrection, and you're promised safe passage through the destruction of the universe by fire, safe passage through the final judgment. Because when Jesus sees you in Christ, when he sees the blood of the Passover lamb on you, that final judgment will pass over you, and you will come into a new heavens and a new earth. Isn't that beautiful? So that's baptism. Moving on, that takes us now uh, into our middle section where we have God provides in the wilderness. What I want you to see on the macro level here is this uh, oscillating between Israel wanders in the wilderness and then God camps them somewhere and then gives them the law. That happens one time in the book of Exodus and twice in the book of Numbers. So we're not going to go over this here. We'll go over this pattern in the book of Numbers. But just show you, God provides for them water, bread, quail, security against enemies, and he even provides counsel through Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. So we'll see that very pattern in numbers. That's all I'm going to say about that. Takes us to the last major section of the book of Exodus, which takes us from chapters 19 through to the end of the book. We see here God takes them to Mount Sinai to give them the law. The law is really hard for us. What's the relationship between law and grace? Let's start here. God will eventually, through the Torah, give Israel 613 laws. What he does for us in Exodus 20 is he says, if I had to summarize those 613 laws into 10, this is how I would do it. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments fully embody all 613 laws. So that if you keep the Ten Commandments, you will by default, at the deeper level, keep all 613 laws, at least the intention of them. But God doesn't stop at 10. He says, I can do better than that. I will summarize the 10 with two. And that's what Jesus says here, right? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What Jesus does is he takes Deuteronomy 6.3, love the Lord your God, and Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, these two laws summarize the ten, the first four commandments saying, love the Lord your God. Last five, well, last six, love your neighbor as yourself. And so these two, Deuteronomy 6.3 and Leviticus 19.18, summarize the ten commandments. The ten commandments summarize the 613 laws. Therefore, love God and love people, and you're keeping the law. In that sense, we must keep the law, right? We must keep the law. There's this whole section in Exodus 20, verse 22, to the end of chapter 23, which is really hard for us as Christians. There's laws about altars, laws about slaves, laws about injuries, laws about restitution, laws about civic life, laws about times and feasts, and laws about the promised land. And we're like, I just don't know what to do with that. 
This is what's called the book of the covenant. These are case laws. These are exemplary laws that were written down to say, if you're to keep the Ten Commandments, these are some ways in which you keep the Ten Commandments. So every one of those laws, if you want to understand them, link them back to one of the Ten Commandments. And then link it to, does this help me to love God or to love people? And then you'll understand the function of that law. Fulfilling the law, we're going to talk about this in Deuteronomy, so I won't go over this now, except to say that Jesus did not abolish the law. He fulfilled it. So it looks different for us to keep the law than it did for Israel, but we keep the depth of the law, and I'll, I'll address what I mean by that when we go through the book of Deuteronomy. So now we're going to move on to the tabernacle. I'm going to show you a few minutes of this. Uh, we're almost done because the rest of the book of Exodus is all about the tabernacle. Uh, so I want to show you, when you read through those final chapters, it's long, it's tedious, and it's boring, and it's redundant. And so our inclination is to skip it. And yet, what I want to impress upon you is there's, it, there's a lot of material that deals with the tabernacle, isn't there? Which means that must be really important to God. Which means probably we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss it. So I think this is really helpful. Uh, if you watch this vi video, I'm just going to show you the first three or four minutes to give you a visual of what you're looking at. The, that video is longer, and I commend it to you. It's on the website, and it will go through every item in the tabernacle. Here's a picture of the tabernacle, a cutout. So if you were to go into the tent of meeting, there's two rooms. In the first room, on the north side, you have the table of bread, and you have 12 loaves of bread. That represents each tribe. That's the people of God. That, that showbread represents the people of God. At the time, it represented Israel. The fulfillment of that is all the people of God, including us. So that, that represents us. We're the fulfillment of that bread. On the south side, you see the candelabra, right? And that represents the light of God. And so in the tent of meeting, you have the light of God shining on the people of God. It's a, it's a picture of communion between God and man. Then you have the altar of incense, and we're told in the book of Hebrews that when the priest would offer incense on there, that represents the prayers of the saints going up to God, which is another uh, method of communion that God's people have with God. It also had a functional purpose, which was on the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about when we go through Leviticus, the priest would off, uh, offer incense on that in order to create a cloud so that if he was to go into the next room, the Holy of Holies, he wouldn't be able to look or see anything, look on God in the wrong way, and be struck dead. On that curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies were woven cherubim. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You go through that curtain, and you're in the holy of holies. In that holy of holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which have two cherubim on top, and what's called the mercy seat, which is the lid. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you have the Ten Commandments, the original, well, the second copy, and you have um, Aaron's staff that budded, and you have a jar of manna. We'll talk about that when we get into numbers. So that just shows you what's in there. I want you to notice this. As you move into the Holy of Holies, 
you move from unclean to holy, holy. So if you're in the wilderness, you're in an unclean location. You come into the camp, and that is to be a clean place. You come into the courtyard of the tabernacle, and you have to be clean at least. You go into the first room of the tent of meeting, and you have to be holy. To get into the holy of holies, that's two times holy. So this is all about getting close to God. The tabernacle is a way to approach God. And you'll see it's sort of like contamination chambers. You get a little bit closer, you make sure that you're safe. You go into the next chamber, you make sure that you're safe. You go into the next chamber, you're getting closer to God and you're being con uh, decontaminated as you get closer to God. We're going to talk about clean and unclean when we go through Leviticus. Remember last week I said that when Adam was booted from the garden, there was uh, some cherubim placed to guard the way back to the tree of life. And Adam was exiled to the east. I don't know if you caught it, but it's very important to God that the tabernacle is set up from east to west. So that whereas Adam is moving east, the high priest is moving west. This is symbolic of moving back into Eden. And the Holy of Holies is, is really, typologically, the Garden of Eden. So this is a picture of how humanity is going to get back into paradise. And what does Jesus say on the cross to the thief? Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Finally, we have entrance back into paradise when Jesus dies. Yeah. Yes, that is very significant. And so you come out into the courtyard, the very first thing you do in the tabernacle is you offer a sacrifice. And we'll talk about that in Leviticus. That's how the book of Leviticus opens, with sacrifice. And then you have the purification and the washing of the sacrifices. Notice that in the courtyard it's bronze. And then outside on the post there's some silver. Then you get into the Holy of Holies and it's gold, gold, gold. That's, again, symbolically getting you closer into God's presence. And it starts with sacrifice. Sacrifice, baptism, entry. We're going to skip over this entirely. There's this whole section on uh, idolatry and intercession. A nice chiasm, which uh, is nice. This whole section is contrasting idol worship with true worship. Why is it placed? Uh, I will say this. I won't go through this chiasm because we don't have time. But you have instructions for the tabernacle. Then you have the golden calf incident. Then you have the construction of the tabernacle. That itself is a macrochiasm. Tabernacle, false worship of a calf, tabernacle. The, the sanctuary of the Lord and a false sanctuary right in the middle. In the middle of that section, or this section of the golden calf, it is bracketed by Sabbath. Sabbath is God marking off time for proper worship. In the middle of the chiasm is Moses confronting Israel in their sin. And this whole thing is trying to redirect Israel. Israel's going to have a real problem with idolatry. And so right here in the middle of establishing this covenant relationship, we have this chiastic experience of true worship, true worship, and in the middle, false worship. And in the middle of the false worship, God's representative confronting Israel in their idolatry which becomes super important for the history of Israel. I don't have time for that any more than that. 
Last thing that we're going to look at, and this is not as complicated as it looks. You have it in your notes. Let's start on the left. In order to understand the tabernacle and the book of Leviticus, you have to understand that as you go west, symbolically you're getting closer to God. And when you get closer to God, you're getting closer to life. As you go east, you're getting further away from God. And the further you get away from God, the closer you're getting to death. So this whole worldview is built on life and death. God resides in life. He's the source of life. And we're constantly going away from God in our rebellion toward death. Okay? So that's the major thing. As you get closer to God, you step closer into God's glorious presence. But there is this place in the middle, which is God's mediated presence. You're not right in the presence of God, but God is, God's presence is being mediated to you. And then over here, as you, as you slide away into sin and uncleanness, God is sustaining you. You have God's sustaining presence, but you're moving toward death. Now, the categories that we'll see in Leviticus, let's start down here with death. Let's go from death to life. It starts with chaos. And then we move into the next category is unclean, and then clean, and then holy. And then there's a barrier. If you are permitted to get from holy to the, uh, past the barrier, you get into holy, holy. That's as holy as you can get on earth. But then heaven, we're told, is holy, 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 three times holy. So we go from chaos to holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 three times holy. That's where life is. Chaos is death. Okay? Now, let's take a look at this. The universe. Let's go back before the fall. There was, the universe was clean and holy before the fall. Eden was Holy, holy. Remember we saw that the, to get back into Eden, you have to get into the holy of holies? And then God was up in heaven, which was three times holy. There was still that distinction before the fall. After the fall of the universe, the universe became unclean. It was cursed. So the tabernacle is God's way of moving us back towards holiness in a fallen world. Okay? So that's the universe. Now let's look at Sinai. The tabernacle is also patterned after the mountain of Sinai. So the summit of Sinai was equivalent roughly to Eden because that's where God and Moses spoke as almost face to face. Remember Moses would come down and his face would be glowing. He'd have to put a veil up. So he's, he's practically back in Eden on the top of Mount Sinai. And there was a cloud that separated him from the people at the base of the mountain. Just like the cherubim separated Eden from the rest of the universe. Then you have the mountain itself, which is holy. And remember, God warns them, don't step on my holy mountain. Stay at the base. The base is clean and safe. And then the wilderness is unclean. Okay, so you see that? Same, we see these parallels. Now, the tabernacle, the, you have exactly this. You have God in three times holy in heaven. And then if you're kind of come down from God in heaven, the next step is you step into this universe into the Holy of Holies. So the tabernacle is like a portal up into heaven. You go from three times holy, you step down into the Holy of Holies. You go through the veil, you're in the holy place, the tent of meeting. 
you come out into the camp, you're in a clean place. If you keep going out into the wilderness, you're in an unclean place. And that is uh, rebuilt permanently on Mount Zion. So you have the Holy of Holies in the temple and the veil and the holy place, the temple mount, and then outside of the temple mount is equivalent to the, to the uh, wilderness. Now look at how Jesus fulfills this. Jesus Christ, before his incarnation and after his ascension, is, is God himself in the three times holy place. No one has ever seen God except for God, who is at the Father's side. He has come and made him known. So Jesus comes from holy, holy, holy. In John 12, we're told that when Isaiah saw Jesus, uh, the Lord sitting on a throne, he was seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. But Jesus incarnates himself and comes into the world, and he is always holy. An unclean person touches him, and he stays holy, and that person becomes clean and holy. Jesus only ever transfigured himself as two times holy, one time that's recorded. He took James, John, and Peter up the mountain and transfigured himself. He was as if in Eden. He was as if in the Holy of Holies, in his incarnated state. But notice what, el what else he did. Um, he actually took on the uncleanness of the world on the cross and deposited it in Sheol. Like he descended. Now the amazing thing is, we are bonded with Christ so that all who receive Christ are clean and holy. And we will travel in Christ into the new heavens and the new earth, which is three times holy. That's our destination. You're going to get to the three times holy place if you're in Christ. But those who reject Christ go the other way. And they go down here into the pit of chaos, which is hell. So at the end of all of this, although there's all these grades of reality, at the end, you're either in the three times holy place or you're in the lake of fire, which is absolute chaos. Death. Two absolutes at the end of it all. And I didn't even fill in some of like, the barrier. That's pretty cool to see that through. But anyway, all that to say, <laughs> there's so many layers to what we read in... Exodus, and it's all fulfilled in Christ. We're right at 10 o'clock, so I'm going to dismiss those who need to go, and then uh, I can take questions. One last thing, actually, though. At the end of the book of Exodus, it's great. The, the tabernacle is constructed. The glory of the Lord comes and fills the Holy of Holies. So you see that descent of the three times holy God down into the holy, holy place. Okay, that's good. But then Moses can't get into the tent. Moses, who met with God up on the mountain, can't get into the tabernacle. And that's a problem. Because that means although God has come down, we can't, we're in no better position to approach Him. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. How do we get into God's presence? How do we get back into paradise? And the answer to that riddle is the book of Leviticus.
And in fact, so much of Christian theology comes out of the book of Leviticus, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Let me pray. If you've got to go, go, and I'd be happy to take questions if anyone wants to stick around. God, I thank you for this night. I thank you for the book of Exodus. We had to go over it so fast. Uh, but I pray that there was enough said that the men here have gained an appreciation for the gospel according to Moses. I pray as we continue to go through the books of the Bible, you would help us to be filled with awe and wonder uh, that you have planned all of these details. There's just too many parallels to see this as coincidental. I thank you that we are living the fullness of your promised deliverance from slavery. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb. Uh, he is our tabernacle. He is everything to us. He takes us into the three times holy place and we long to be where he is. In his name we pray. Amen. Have a great night.